0: I was recruited I I did go on a recruiting trip I, I went to the University of North Carolina uh but it was a situation where I was like kind of right on the cusp um I wasn't a scholarship oh, okay. athlete and it wasn't a guaranteed spot it was you know um they brought me in they were interested I needed to train hard over the summer and then essentially still kind of try out
1: gotcha. in the fall. so
0: it, it wasn't a guaranteed, yeah so um a little more security than maybe just like deciding on a whim to to go try out but um not a ton of security so-
1: Did you know that we each lose a different amount of electrolytes in our sweat largely based on our genetics? That means that there's no one-size-fits-all perfect sports drink for everybody because we each have unique needs. That's why we at Solpre developed the Sync Hydration System, a series of sports drinks to help match you with the personal level of electrolytes that you need. If you'd like us to help you match with your perfect sports drink, go to solpre.com. Slash hydration dash quiz. That's com slash hydration dash quiz. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is currently a trail ultra runner for Nike Trail. She has three USATF national championships under her belt. Um, she has her master's degree in sport and performance psychology. Uh, currently is a mental performance consultant at Strive Mental Performance. She's the author of Mental Training for Ultra Running. You can find her on Instagram or Twitter at Addie Bracey. Welcome to the show, Addie Bracey.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So um, I I didn't include this in the intro, but I do want to ask you about it. And and I think it's noteworthy. Um, So for you, the listener, if you're not familiar, um, not many people walk onto Division I programs and Period. Let alone do well. So I want to ask you a little bit about that kind of experience, um, at least in my own small experience. Often, individual athletes are recruited; they don't just pop out of the woodwork um, <laughs> to, to, to come onto the team. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, why you decided to come out, um, how the experience went, how that, how that, you know, part of your story kind of unfolded.
0: Sure. Yeah. I guess it was kind of a unique experience where um, I was recruited. I I did go on a recruiting trip. I I went to the University of North Carolina, uh, but it was a situation where I was like kind of right on the cusp. Um, I wasn't a scholarship athlete and it wasn't a guaranteed spot. It was, you know, um, they brought me in, they were interested. I needed to train hard over the summer and then essentially still kind of try out in the fall. So it it wasn't... Yeah. So, um, a little more security than maybe just like deciding on a whim to to go try out, but, um, not a ton of security. So, um, for me, it was, it was motivating. And I guess, um, I'm always an, an athlete that's just like identified with being a really hard worker and not necessarily just seriously, naturally talented. So, um, I, I kind of felt like I had a good shot if, uh, I worked hard over the summer and, and had a good showing in the fall and I did. And, um, yeah, then from there just kind of progressed, um, and my performances throughout my time at the university and eventually was, um, you know, a team captain and school record holder and that kind of thing, but definitely did not start that way.
1: You know, I, in some ways I kind of sympathize with college coaches. I, to a much lesser degree, um, kind of had an experience I can relate to yours and that like, I, I went to this pretty competitive D2 school or I didn't go there, but I, I uh, Talk to the coach and kind of visit visited campus and all those kind of things very competitive distance program um and basically i just i wasn't even close to fast enough for him, him to be interested in me and then so i went to a different school but we still raced against the school and because i like you worked very hard i was easily could have been on his varsity team without any problem so it's like on the one hand like i like had this like personal grudge and felt slighted but at the same time, like, how you know how do co- what what do coaches have to go on to judge? Like, is this going to be a good fit for my team? Are they going to you know are they actually going to develop into anything, um, you know, and have potential? Um, so, given your work um, in kind of trying to dig deeper into the nitty gritty of what's going on with the brain and athletes, is there anything you look for when you go like, this person's not living up to their potential and I can see why and what we need to tweak?
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and I totally agree with you. It's kind of hard to predict one or where the other. You know, you also see a lot of um, the other side of athletes coming in with maybe stellar high school resumes that don't end up performing uh, as well. Um, I guess when I look at that, sometimes I look at where uh, an athlete, I work with a lot of high school athletes. I look at, um what kind of environment are they currently training in and then what is their goal? If they, if it is to, to compete in college, it's not necessarily just runners. What is their goal there? And what I mean by that is a lot of times you might have athletes who are uh, kind of like a big fish in a small pond and maybe aren't used to not winning or aren't used to not being the best on their team. And then might have um, ideas about going to like a big division one program. And I, I, Often we'll start having conversations with them about things like um, deal, dealing with that, dealing with like not being the best on the team, dealing with people that are better than you, dealing with um, you know maybe not making varsity the first year because that might be something that would be challenging for them. You know, on the flip side, I have athletes who are part of very competitive programs or play a, a club sport where they are kind of already used to that pressure. So I guess uh, one thing would just be. Um, what kinds of training environments and expectations and pressure are, are they exposed to earlier? I think that can be something that's helpful just to kind of get an idea of where someone's at with that. The other side, it comes um, down a lot to what someone's motivated by in terms of results and outcome and like extrinsic, or is someone, um, interested in getting better. And I think that that's something that can be really indicative, especially in young athletes of like how long they might be in a sport. Um, in fact, I did a podcast recently where, uh, the guy mentioned that a theme he had seen across the board over 200 episodes was that, um, when he asked various performers in in various different settings, what kind of what they are motivated by or what they would be proud of. And, you know, 10 years down the road, it was, it was that like improving or getting better or meeting their potential. And so, um, that's something that's a lot more sustainable over the long haul and shows that, um, an athlete probably has a healthier relationship with outcome and like what that means about them as an athlete if they have that focus versus just kind of like a strictly performance and outcome based focus. So those two things are are big ones that I that I can see as predictors of like how long someone might be in a sport.
1: I think that's definitely a I mean regardless of like school size, there is I think always a jump um or not always, but roughly speaking always a jump in training volume, competitiveness when you go from high school to college. So then I think you get a little bit of culture shock, like no matter where you came from, because if you're competitive, you're trying to move up, right? You're always trying to move up, which means more competition, more pressure, more work, all those kinds of things. And that is, I, I think, as you deal with it trying to figure out is somebody going to crack or be able to handle the workload of being a student athlete because you are a student athlete um for the vast majority of student athletes they're not going to be getting paid even with the changes in NCAA rules um in dealing with that workload like there's i just feels like there's so many factors to try to figure out if you're a college coach like who belongs on my team and you know is it even quantifiable like obviously we can look at the numbers and go oh they play such and such and they ran such and such time what regarding runners That's um true. but you know can we quantify that that mental part is it only do we just have them do like a questionnaire intrinsic extrinsic motivation um try to figure that out or or is there anything else we can kind of like look at and and try to suss out more of uh I guess, solid criteria to figure out if they can handle the mental stress.
0: Yeah, I think it's intriguing. Um, there was a, a sports psychologist um, that developed a program or like a test kind of to to um, test. I can't remember exactly what he called it, but it was basically like a- athletic m- mental skills and like m- emotional and psychological intelligence. And it was used a lot in um like drafting and major league sports, and I've kind of wondered why that hasn't, and maybe it will start to um, become a component in collegiate athletics. Um, and even one of my mentors and the director of sports psychology at my grad program um, works with the Denver Broncos, and he goes with them when they go, um, you know, to to the drafting, um, whatever that's called. I always forget it's what it's draft. called. The draft. Yeah. 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 It is like involved in those conversations and then gives his feedback or input on like where he thinks that person is with their mental and psychological skills in addition to their physical skill set. And I think there's definitely you know room for that in collegiate athletics um, for a number of reasons, you know, not, not only because you're trying to have the best team, but also um you know, if you can see where someone's at and then also see maybe where there's deficits, like just to have student athletes have a healthier collegiate experience because a lot of people don't because they are treated just as kind of like their outcome and numbers. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I don't, I don't have an answer of like how to quantify that necessarily, but there are tools and was the equation only, but in development, like while an athlete is in a program, you know, just like you go from high school to college and all of a sudden, you know, I had a nutritionist and an athletic trainer and a strength coach and an advisor and like all these tools and we had a sports psychologist, but it wasn't really utilized. And so. On the other side of it, yeah, it would be nice to to also see that as part of the strategy of how to improve an athlete's potential while they're at a program.
1: You know, you earlier you mentioned um, maybe kids, I'll say kids, but young adults who are used to being uh, a big fish in a small pond and trying to figure out whether they're going to adapt to new changes. And then it made me wonder, it made me think about um, my friend Willie, who. Unfortunately, didn't get to finish his uh, tenure at the college that I went to, but he was definitely big fish in small pond. Um, but I almost saw that as a positive thing in his case because he was willing to learn, and he had a lot of potential. Like he lived in a town of like twelve hundred people, so and on his track, on his track team, I think he can. He, I mean, as a distance runner, competed in the maximum number of events he could every single me and still was doing well so it was like we i think we saw him as um he has a lot of like physical gifts that haven't necessarily been brought to the fore yet by like concentrating him down into you know where he belongs he's like whatever he's most adept at um It so i kind of like i wonder about that like almost like <laughs> this is the entrepreneur me like like a value add opportunity like, like, like buying a fixer upper in a house like it's the, it's the worst house on the best block kind of situation is what I'm thinking about with, with these athletes in the um, big fish small pond situation if that's like a potential strategy of we see that they have physical gifts and maybe they are not there and then they haven't had the opportunity to work with a, a, a mental performance consultant or a psychologist and those things we think could really bump them up. Okay, so we're back from a, a little bit of a technical issue, so I, I'm not exactly sure where we end up having to cut. But I, I was asking Addie about um, her her big fish, small pond scenario, um, where I see it almost as like potentially an opportunity for for college coaches. Uh, I saw the story about my my friend Willie who grew up in a small town did all kinds of events for his track meet or for his track team. He's in a town of like 1200 came to college, kind of like worked him down into more specifically what he was good at. and He really excelled. So I, I kind of see potentially those like big fish, small pond athletes as possibly like, like a fixer upper house situation where you're buying the, the best hat or the worst house on the best block. Where it's like, there's, there's a there's a lot of potential there, basically. And if you can, you know, get them a better coach that has, you know, can structure what they're doing a little bit more, give them, you know, access to maybe uh, trainers if they need them. I mean, for like, uh like sports medicine, uh, you know, mental performance, all that kind of thing, like see it as like, maybe they didn't have, they didn't win state or be the absolutely best uh you know, performer at high school, but they have, still have a long way to go and have, you know, shown kind of performance so far. So I kind of wonder what your thoughts are on if that seems like a, a potentially valid strategy for, for recruitment.
0: Totally, yeah. And that and that's kind of, yeah, I guess as like a, a sidebar is, um, it's only the small fish, big, big fish, small pond is only an, an issue or a challenge if the athlete isn't, Um, adapting their mental, their perspective over the situation. And I would say I was that way. I I lived in a small community. I was the best on my team by a lot. And I won a lot of races. And um, the year I went to Carolina, Shalane Flanagan had just made the Olympic team and she was still on the team. And so I saw that as, um, wow, this will be cool that I actually have people to train with that are better than me. Um, You know, I'm going to be competing against people that are better than me. And we know that, that that helps people improve. That's, you know, there's been such a rise in, in running groups and training groups and professionally in the U.S. over the last 10 years for that exact reason. So I absolutely think it's an opportunity. Um, it's if if the the mental side of that and the emotional side of that is like fostered and and talked about because it the challenge is when. That becomes discouraging to the athlete. You know, all of a sudden they were the best and they were winning everything and now they're not. But um so it's all about perspective. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's absolutely an, an opportunity. And and um I I would see an athlete coming from that kind of background as having tons of potential, you know, if if fostered in the right way.
1: So I want to back up a little bit because you were talking about earlier um that you work a lot or with a lot of high school athletes, even though you worked with athletes at a variety of levels and performances. Um, so I guess I want to ask about what it is that you do um, and, and maybe how you kind of found yourself in that avenue.
0: Yeah, the, the way I got into sports, like working in sports psychology and mental performance is that I have spent, I mean, I'm just turned 36. I've been uh, training and competing at a high level I would say since high school, you know, I was taking it pretty serious even then. Um, And over that time had just recognized, you know, probably my early thirties, how big of a piece of the pie, the mental piece was and how that was the piece I spent the least amount of time on. Um, And, and it also seems like that was the hardest resource to find um, when I did realize that and realized like, wow, this is like probably my biggest weakness or my biggest deficit. And I'm having a hard time finding someone to help me Um, at the time I was coaching and I do still coach, but, um, I had done some college coaching, some high school coaching, some post-collegiate coaching and, and kind of felt like I was a pretty good coach, but there were so many really great coaches and, um, there weren't a lot of people I, that I felt like were providing this resource in a way that was accessible. Um, so that led, that's kind of what led me on this track. Um, and then the way I, you know, the way I work with athletes and, and, um, of all different levels and and ages is um it's you don't really have to when you have a conversation and like most people most athletes would agree that the psychological side is huge but it's called mental training you know for a reason it's not like you just have it yeah of course you develop some mental skills um you know as a byproduct of doing hard things and doing certain training and um, existing in a certain program but to have intention and to have uh, like direction over the skills you're trying to develop and realizing like where the blind spots are, um, is huge. Um, I, I think it's kind of everything. It's, uh, the thing that brings all the other pieces together. You know, if you're doing all the other things, that's kind of like the glue that holds it all together and, and lets you actually perform. So, um, just like any, I kind of, I guess the way I describe my job sometimes is like, uh, as a PT for the brain in the sense that, um, if there's a symptom showing up, there's probably like a core reason so if the symptom is someone's choking at really high pressure situations there's probably a reason if someone uh, is struggling with like motivation there's probably a reason and so we kind of look at the symptom and then figure out maybe what the core issue is you know the same you would um, like my knee's hurting but the issue is like my glutes are weak and so then we start working on that thing and we have literal tools, exercises that we're implementing into training to like develop this mental skill so that this new way of thinking about things or reacting to things or focus or attention becomes like the new pattern, just like PT exercises. You're trying to like correct a faulty pattern. So it's very similar. and And I think of it as a pretty literal, tangible skill development, just like any other part of training.
1: It makes you wonder about, so um generally speaking uh when you now i know things change actual pt um all the time uh or have over the years but when you think about like what you're doing and just the field of psychology like it's still very young as compared to say like physical medicine so i i kind of wonder about like you know you're talking about identifying the core issue and then you know, working backwards from there to how do we resolve it and implement new tools, new skills. Are you uh, using methodologies developed by somebody? Are you like developing your own methodologies? How does that practice kind of unfold for you?
0: Kind of both. Yeah, there's definitely a combination of, um, you know, there's just general psychology and human behavior and like really just knowing how the brain works. So a lot of the theories and methodologies are that of typical counseling and, and um, yeah, just understanding the relationship between thoughts and behaviors. Um, And that's kind of like the core tenet, I guess, a lot of it. um, I work with athletes in in a lot of different sports, um, but with my background, there's definitely a lot of my own theories I've kind of developed in terms of uh, what's most important within the realm of like, let's say distance running specifically, just because I think it's a pretty unique sport um, especially trail and ultra running. So some of that is is just my own experience and what I've seen over decades of being an athlete and a coach, um, but I would say a lot of it, yeah, it revolves around just the research and what we know about how the brain works. Um, when, it, it, like I said, it's pretty literal in a lot of ways, and so when you can understand some like kind of core behaviors or reasons, why, there's kind of themes um, that that tend to show up, um, and and to me that's actually really awesome because when you can kind of blame it on like biology or like, okay, I see what the intention was here. I see why my brain reacted that way. That's, this is the reason why we developed that skill, but it's a little bit outdated. So let me like implement this new more desired um, reaction or thought process. So um, kind of a combination of, of things I would say like biology, psychology, human behavior, and then
1: just experience. So if you don't mind um, trying to get to like maybe a, uh tangible work through so like say i come to you and we'll just go i'll just say addy i'm just i just have a lot of real negative mental self-talk where i just tell myself that i suck and i'm not good and all these things where do you start with me in that in that kind of process of trying to break down what's going on inside my brain and get it get it worse operating more efficiently
0: Yeah. So, I mean, self-talk is a huge one for sure. Um, I would, yeah, I would want to understand kind of like relationship with outcome and performance and results. A lot of times when we have, um, unproductive, like thought, like self-talk or thought patterns, it comes from, um, there's, there's like a lack of belief for some reason. And we're usually almost like talking ourselves out of it before like self-sabotaging, Um, And there's usually, you know, a reason for that. I would say that most of the time that's probably coming from having like an unhealthy um, connection between like identity and worth and results, which is a very easy trap to fall into as a collegiate athlete, um, as a professional athlete, as an athlete in certain sports I work with where there's like a big lifestyle component. And so typically like that can become uh, one of that. That's usually like one of the core reasons is, is, um, that relationship with identity and that kind of materializing as um yeah unproductive self-talk um so the first step in terms of like foundationally you would want to work on relationship with sport you would want to work on recognizing you're a whole person um and 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 kind of fostering those other pieces but as like a more maybe narrow narrow um approach or skill set would be to work on self-talk and and sometimes it's um, it, it would be really dependent on this specific situation but sometimes that means working on self-talk but sometimes that means redirecting focus and attention somewhere else so that the self-talk kind of isn't even an issue so there's yeah the way I look at it is usually there's a big picture of like okay where's this coming from what's the core thing we really need to work on but also like here's the symptom that we also kind of have to take care of um and and you know self-talk's a habit and there becomes Um, our brain is to, go back to like the biology piece, our brain is really good at kind of creating associations with certain things, especially experiences. And so sometimes self-talk becomes just like literally a habit of like Mm -hmm. this experience mixed with this emotion that I'm like feeling leads me to feel this way about myself or say this, talk to myself in this way. Um, and that's like an association that can be changed, but it just takes kind of intention and um, self-awareness.
1: You had mentioned um, one of the root causes potentially being this idea about identity being wrapped up in uh, expectation of positive results, and you know this is something that I think I've certainly grappled with over the years, and I think I've experienced many people who have trouble, say, post-collegial who who, um, unlike you or I maybe don't go on to do anything post-collegially and just now they're just floating in free space and are no, lo- no longer a runner or no longer a soccer player, or no longer this thing and they've lost a sense of identity. Um, it makes me think about uh, when I spoke with uh, Kim Vandenberg, uh, it was back in episode 97. She's a Olympics bronze medal swimmer from 2008. Um, she talks about when she's coaching young kids, even no matter how ambitious they are, she says, well, you need something else. Like she plays the piano. Um, I think she does other stuff too, but that was one thing that she mentioned because she had a piano in the background when I talked to her. That's kind of her methodology for like trying to help foster that sense of whole identity versus like, this is my one thing and I'm, I'm only this thing. And if I'm not good at it, then I'm not worth anything. What do you have... A a method or a suggestion for decoupling that this is who I am versus this is what I do?
0: Yeah. I mean, one one thing that I like to think about is um what are you getting? Like what are you getting out of it? And this comes from a lot of research I've seen where um some someone that goes on to be successful when there was a career ending injury or something like out of their control, like took the one thing from them, but then they pivot and end up doing something else, whether that's at like a high level or just finding joy and satisfaction. And, and one of the the ways that people do that is like, what are you get, what is it that makes this thing something that's so important to you? And the piano is a great example because I would imagine there's like some flow that's experienced in both swimming and on the piano there's um measurable improvement there's that there's probably the um um like independent factor that they're both pretty individual i would there's probably a lot of different uh similarities between the two that makes them similarly fulfilling and so i that's something you know i'm i'm nearing retirement from running and 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 i've started trying to build that foundation for myself and so for for me as an, like an example is what i get from uh my sport that I hope to recreate and continue to find in other places is connection, doing hard things, um, being outside, being in nature. A lot of different things that could be also fulfilled with mountain biking or skiing or, um, you know, other things that aren't running. And so um, that, that's where I would start. You know, I think sometimes we just we don't have that much intention behind it, or we don't try and replicate when actually there's probably a lot of things that might not be as satisfying, but could be pretty close. And I think that's, that's one way to kind of fill that void or at least have some support, some support around it. Um, but then on the other side is just, um, I talk one place I start with most people. And what I talk about myself is like values and realizing there are a lot of things that are important to me outside of running and, uh, (laughs) due to a comment that was made by my coach slash father when I was really young, I thought for a really long time that being the most dedicated athlete and to have the highest likelihood of success meant nothing else could matter to me. That was not like everything else needed to be secondary and I needed to be willing to sacrifice everything for running. And I fully disagree with that now. Um, So, you know, a lot of times it's just perspective and seeing, it's also important to me to, to spend time with friends. It's also important to me to be a good family member. My job is important to me. And so when you can also look at it as a whole, um, you know, you're, not, you're not just trying to replicate what you're getting from your performance, you're also seeing that there's other dimensions that are worth investing in. And what's really cool is that when you do, to use your word, decouple the identity from the performance and you do take all the pressure, not all of it, but take some of the pressure and expectations, when you put everything into that one thing, there's also this um, by this uh, side, I guess side effect of then expecting that to give everything back to you, and that doesn't always happen. And so, when people have a more balanced, holistic approach and identity, they're willing to take more risks. They're willing to to you know put themselves out there in the performance setting because if it falls short, then the whole world doesn't crumble. And that's something I've really seen in myself the last five or six
1: years. Well, so it kind of, I mean, stumble over my words here, but so nobody gets away from father time, so to speak. Like we all have a shelf life as athletes. Now we can compete, continue competing, but just there's at some point a peak and then a decline. It, you know, you're talking about being able to, or coming to a point sometime soon, um, thinking about retiring, but. I think, unless I'm mistaken, you just had a, a, a pretty good win just a couple weeks ago. Um, so is it, can, can I guess, can you talk me through that and then maybe thoughts on retirement, unless that's going to like mess with your head yeah. and then ignore me?
0: <laughs> no, I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I guess there's a couple of different answers to that question. One is, um I am still winning races, but I also am still declining. You know, I I have changed my events and I'm in a domain now where I do think that you can have more longevity than maybe on the track or the road. Um, I hit that that point already where I started to get slower and not faster. Um, I think a lot of it is just uh, the only way. I think something I see sometimes or or maybe something that uh, I want to be careful with is I don't see... I don't want to get to the point where I'm just like sucking everything I can out of my body. So for me, a lot of the decision to maybe retire in the next few years is I've given a lot of my life to the sport and it's been great. And I am glad that I have and it's given me everything back, but um, there's also time that I would, you know, like to have back and other things that I want to do. So I I think I see it more from that standpoint. Um, There's a lot of different reasons to retire. And I think sometimes we get fixated on thinking that the only reason is, because our bodies are done kind of giving us what what it did give us. Mm
1: -hmm. I I think that's fair. And that's also probably just, again, as I mentioned earlier, just my own like grappling with identity and and who am I if I'm not this thing and just kind of projecting that on you a little bit. Um, (laughs) But it's just, you know, because we all come at it from a different place. I think, you know, I guess speaking from a personal standpoint, i get i guess maybe a little envious um of people that had the opportunity to race you know at such a high level um and then i just go you know why would you retire if you didn't have to you know it's it's this like weird situation um where it's like i both understand that there is more to life it also like have this kind of it, to me, it feels like unfinished business, but it is finished. Whether it's I feel like it's unfinished or not, um, of that kind of alternate life that I imagined for myself at one point in time. So, just you know, interesting mind games that, my, you know, I kind of play with myself, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it it, it would be. Um, it, I think that one reason why I do have this perspective, though, is my entire professional life outside of my life as an athlete has still, um, come to fruition and has been impacted a lot by my life as an athlete, meaning mm-hmm. that like, I'm not someone that's quitting the sport and then going into like investment banking or something, right. you know, my whole, so I think because of that, it's, 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 it's more like, I don't see myself stepping away from the sport so much as just changing my role in it. And I think that's made it easier too. It's and I'm fortunate in that sense that I will always be involved in the sport at a really intense level. And my role is starting to change, but um, I think I would have a harder time if it was like I had to stop and then to walk away and like start something totally different,
1: yeah, i I think that's fair. Um, it, and i I think I think that's maybe a lesson for I mean me. I obviously run this like company that's related to athletics, but um just for anybody, you know, like I mentioned, people have this tough time going from say, collegiate athlete or Olympic athlete sure. or whatever it is, and then just like, cold turkey being cut off like finding some tangential way to stay connected i think could be helpful maybe not for everybody i mean like i mentioned with kim earlier she i don't i don't know if this is her whole job but you know she's coaching swimming she's not obviously not swimming at an olympic level anymore but like she's helping young kids come up and learn how to swim and learn how to be people and that kind of thing and kind of taking that the skills and identity that she fostered over the years and putting them to use instead of like setting them on a shelf and letting them get, you know, dusty and being like, Oh, way back when, you know? So I I think maybe that's an interesting or potential uh, mental strategy for people that are like dealing with that off the cliff kind of situation. Yeah. So I want to ask you, I think, I think you've got Leadville coming up. Soon. Yep. i was trying to find the date. One for week from it on. Um. Uh, it's
0: next, next weekend.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I think it's like, I was like, I, in my head, I'm like, it's really soon. I like, can't yeah, like on the Leadville site trying to find the actual date and having know, a hard time for some reason. Um. So, it, one of the things I don't know because I've I've never gotten into ultras, even though I seem to talk to a lot of um pro runners. It. It, do you guys do a big taper leading up to the race? Like, I mean, I know I would, ex, you know, expecting going in 5,000, 10,000, you're trying to peak in those fast, aggressive things, pretty big taper, you know, intensity stays high, but then your mileage really drops with the ultras, obviously you've got to still be able to go to the distance. So are you still dropping mileage going into a race like that?
0: Yeah, I usually will do um, still a decent week out, uh, still a decent week, three weeks out. Um, and usually three weeks out, I'll do like my biggest volume weekend or one of, um, and then still like a decent weekend, two weeks out. And then the week of, yeah, maybe not similar to, to track and that kind of thing is I won't do much at all, like the four days before. Um, so it's a little bit different, but it's also like the physical demands are different. You know, you're not needing to be like super sharp and on point um so yeah i think some people probably back off more than but than i do i kind of do like decent training and then a hard drop rather than like a long taper
1: what i think is interesting like turning to like the, the dichotomy because i'm more familiar with that that short sharp taper where you still got to be you got to be able to crank the gears pretty high and hard and be fresh for that versus like you know, it, it, t- like taking off four days before say a, a championship meet to run a five thousand. I could see if somebody like got a cold or something and needed to get well okay but like that was almost like blasphemy i think for most people to think about in that situation um so is it just a matter of going like uh you i don't know how far this phrase goes but we to say um haze in the barn when the work was done is it just going i've got my base that's really all i need and then i need fresh legs and and that's it for you is that is that the strategy
0: pretty much yeah it's interesting I've kind of um, I'm self-coached and I obviously ran on the track for many years at a pretty decent level and um, I've played with different ways of training for 100 milers and then also like the few weeks leading up to it and there were times when I still would do faster workouts, you know, for the duration of the training program. And then even up to like the week of, or the week before, just like I would when I was training for the 10 K or something. And it didn't necessarily feel detrimental, but it didn't really necessarily feel helpful either. So yeah, to answer your question, it's, um, at that point, you're just like, you're just resting, you know, you've got all the base miles in, um, there's no like sharpness required, you know, race pace is so slow (laughs) compared to anything you've done. So you really just want to be rested, um, no aches or niggles and eat a lot. Like honestly, the four days before I'm just like not doing much and like eating a ton. So it's different for sure. than yeah, a couple, you know, not even that long ago, six, seven years ago, you're doing three or four days before a big track meet. You're probably running some of your fastest repeats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not high volume, but you want to be like ripping pretty fast three days before. Otherwise, um, you'd start to feel pretty flat. So it's definitely different. It's been a learning curve for me.
1: One of the things I always find interesting about, and everybody's like strategy and and training varies, but just like the thing I, I find interesting about some ultra runners, and I don't know how common this is among the pros, is like, say we're going up, the race is a 50 miler, and then like their typical training volume is like just 50 miles a week. Like they don't really have any longer runs. Just something about that just messes with my brain. I think because I'm used to needing that mileage and then the speed on top of it for the shorter stuff, but just something about that goes, how do you have enough base under you to go for, so, 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 I mean, if you're running 50 miles a week and you're running, I'll say five days a week, you're probably running more than that, but you're only doing 10 mile days. And then now you're going to go run a 50 miler. Like there's just a disconnect in my brain. Can can you talk to me about, I guess, maybe the physical and mental challenges of, making that jump since it seems physically possible for some people.
0: Yeah. I mean, that would be low for, for people trying to like win those races, but there's, there's plenty of people winning hundred milers who don't run more than 80 miles a week. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say one of the biggest mental barriers to ultra running is the gap between training and race demands. I mean, even when I used to run marathons, like we would still do a 21, 22 mile long run. And even then I felt like, gosh, how am I gonna go four or five more miles? But now my longest training run, I did do um, I did do 50 miles and that's longer than most people do, but that's still half the distance. So a lot of it is just um believing believing that it's enough um from a mental standpoint. And there's I think that's for me where I get a lot of comfort in in believing that the mental piece has more of an impact on performance in hundreds than it does in like a 5k it has an impact in a 5k but my point is that like if you don't have a certain physical preparation or even genetic makeup like it doesn't matter how confident you are or how mentally sound you are like you're not going to run a 15 35k if you don't have like a certain skill set for hundreds all the people winning these races are super talented but i do think the physio the pure purely physiological threshold is lower And that the mental piece is the bigger piece. And so I guess I find comfort in that. And that helps me kind of deal with that disconnect between like what I've done recently and what I'm racing from, but I will say from a more logistical or, um, uh, like trainings aspect, for example, like I said, I ran marathons for many years and I think, I think I went like five or six years, maybe more where I average over hundred miles a week for the whole year and topped out, you know, was probably doing 120 miles a week, a lot of the time. And I was only training for a marathon. And so in my head, when I first switched to hundreds, I was, I was like, I don't know how to like, I can't run that much more than that. And and now I run 200
1: miles a week or something. It would just be insane.
0: Right. And so this recent buildup, I think my highest week was 107 miles, which pure, pure mileage is not that much. It is a lot, but for, for someone that's been doing it for 10 years, I'm like, that's not a ton, but the difference is, um, I was doing it at 10,000 feet. And then with trail and ultra running, it's on trails. And so what I've started to look at instead is training time. And so, yeah, I ran 107 miles, but I, but with, let's say 18,000 feet of elevation gain. And so then when you look at time, I'm like, well, I ran 20 hours that week. And if you do kind of the math on that, that would be 135 miles. So um, I guess what I'm saying is trail and ultra runners aren't as wrapped up in just that one variable of mileage as much as I was when I was a road runner, a track runner, and as much as, mo- there's a lot of other variables that make that like actually more impressive than it sounds. So there's kind of two answers for you of of how like I reconcile that in my own head.
1: Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, so uh, as we're winding down on time, um, listeners of the show for you that's listening know this, but I ask a single question each season of the show to all my guests. Um, for you, it's very poignant because it just happened. And I'm hoping you've got can answer. Um, but this season's question is, how do you celebrate your wins?
0: Oh, good question. Um, well, the most recent one was hard because it, 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 feel, it felt like it was like not the big not the Not the, not the one. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not ready to celebrate yet. Maybe ask me in two weeks. OK. Um. um Gosh, I guess from a literal standpoint, I mean, my sport requires a lot of support. And so, you know, a lot of it is, is literally celebrating with the people that helped me get here and the ones that will help me throughout the day, throughout the day. But, um, I don't know. I think sometimes I, I feel like sometimes I celebrate the wins by remembering the lows, you know, like, wow, I, I, the wins are few and far between at this point. And so sometimes I like to kind of reflect and be like, wow, this was, this was two or three or four years in the making um so yeah t- kind of taking some reflection time to think about like where i came from to get there and then just some good old-fashioned celebrating too and, and hanging out with people and just like feeling how good it feels um because it passes quickly too
1: uh Addie, if people want to see what you're up to uh you know i guess when by the time this airs uh level bill will have already happen so they can maybe see the results if they want to connect with you any of that kind of stuff where can they do that
0: uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram at, at Addie Bracey. And then um, my my private practice is uh, Strive Mental Performance uh, at StriveMentalPerformance.com. And there's two good places.
1: Awesome. Addie, thanks for hanging out with me today. Uh, good luck in Leadville. Uh, for you listening, uh, go ahead and look up the results. We'll, you'll be able to see what happened, but we won't know for a, a little bit more time. So
0: Nice. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.